Hiya, welcome to the Christians in Sport podcast. Um, I'm absolutely buzzing because since we started doing this podcast, I've been trying to get this guest and I've got her at last. The reason it takes ages is that she's an army major, you see. That's why it is. So she's a very important person. She's been in the army since 2002. Her name is Anno Flynn, but it's Flynny in this podcast, obviously. It's Flynny because she's a player, a rugby player. Uh, she's a major in the Royal Army Veterinary Corps because she's a vet. If I told you where she's lived, we'd be here for half an hour because she's been all over the world. She started out uh, in a professional life uh, by going to Liverpool in 91, spent 10 years there doing a degree, then as a research assistant, then training as a vet, and went straight, effectively straight into the army from there. Uh, here's the reason she's on the podcast, of course. Top, top rugby player. At the heart of the England squad, 97 to 06 with a range of other club honours and regional honours around it. Uh, big deals. Uh, Grand Slam in 2003, that means the Welsh were vanquished. Not good. Pinnacle World Cup finalist, 2002. Oh, listen. One more thing. Listen out for the referee banter. Because Flinney is a proper referee. She's done it after finishing international rugby. And my word, listen up, Fred, because you really do not want to cross this woman on a pitch. Great fun. Anna Flynn. This is the Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels. Flinny, absolutely brilliant to have you on the Christians in Sport podcast. Thanks, Dano. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm going to take you back to, well, the 80s, because as a kid in the Slough-Windsor area, Slough-Windsor-Richmond, growing up, you are a rugby player, full-back, number nine. Your England career is as a hooker, but you're playing right. in the backs. Uh, tell me about why you started playing rugby, because it wouldn't have been m normal for a sporty kid in the 80s? No, I was, I was an anomaly. I was the only girl in my club. And in fact, I think I was the first female player they'd had there. And it came about because I have, a, I have a five younger brothers and a younger sister. The brother who's close to me in age, he was always very energetic. And I think a family friend said to my parents, that boy needs to do some running around. Take him down to Slough Rugby Club on a Sunday morning, mini rugby, doing the world of good. So I remember going down... In my tracksuit, because I was slightly envious of brother getting his chance to play sport and I wasn't, went down to watch him, watched a fantastic two-hour Sunday morning mini-session with hundreds of kids running around. At the end of the session, I turned to my mum and said, I want to play next week. And she said, well, OK, well, we'll speak to the coach. Went across to the coach. He was a bit astounded and said, looked at me and said, but you're a girl. And I said, I think a bit precociously, yes, I know that. And, he said, and that was his only reason he could think of for not letting me play. He said, OK, 10 o'clock next Sunday, bring some boots. Were you buzzing? Oh, I, I was so excited because I could see the fun the lads had had, getting muddy, throwing himself around. I had been playing a bit of football that stage, my brother's school team, because I was at a school that only had girls and we didn't really do any muddy sports. But I was the kind of girl who wanted to throw herself around, climb trees, chase after balls, and so I was absolutely chuffed. And that was it. Then I was hooked. I found a sport from an early age which I loved. 
and I just relished it. Like, it was great fun. Did when was the first time that you realised that being a girl could cause you problems when you're playing with the boys? Did it happen early or not at all? Yes, we, we played against other teams. Initially I had hair in pigtails, so to keep out of the way. And there were other, other players who thought it was fun to pull my hair rather than actually tackling me. That lasted about two weeks before I said to my mum, right, that's it, cut the pigtails off. I'm going to have a short haircut so no one, knew, no one could pull my hair. They were having a, a fair advantage over me. Um, there was a bit of name-calling, of course, but my teammates, once I, once I showed them that I could be a good team player and I earned my position a team on merit... And in fact, the coach used to use me as a tackling demonstrator by the, by the end of the first season because I was the, the demon tackler in the team. That was my, my reputation. And so the lads of my team said, I know, let's, let's call you Andrew or Anthony so that no one knows you're a girl, but we'll know. And then we'll tell them when you've really tackled somebody and they'll be dead embarrassed. And that, that became our sort of team secret. So like, and I played fullback because I was a great tackler. And also part, I think, initially... Like, well, you're a girl, you can stand at the back kind of away from the rest of us because we're a bit embarrassed that you're a girl. But once then began making try-saving tackles and becoming sort of the hero of the team, on, you know, rare occasions, I was welcomed in. So, um, yeah, they'd say, oh, come on, Andrew, make a tackle. And they'd go across this lad and say, do you know be tackled by a girl? And it was the ultimate disgrace sometimes. Some poor boy who was lying there winded or having not the ball on. Yeah. Flenny, how long did you play only with boys? I played in a boys' team for seven years. So I played from the age of 7 to 13. And right, all that time, okay. I occasionally, in other tournaments, met other kind of girl players. And it was always nice. And of course, often I've had, I had short hair they didn't recognise. Because I was a late developer physically. Yeah. So yeah. I looked just like one of the lads. I had a short back and size haircut. So I would often go and say hello to other girls and say, oh, hi, great to see you playing. And my mum and pet dad were brilliant supporters. They took us everywhere. Minis tournaments, Sunday mornings. I used to always... Um, girls are family everywhere, you know, part of the whole family in the back of our big sort of transit van with a, a flask of hot bovril and a couple of supporters over off. Let me take you forward to getting to uni. Uh, there's so much we could talk about, but I, I'm going to jump now to going to uni. So you get to Liverpool and uh, you pioneer again uh, because you start a women's rugby team. They just don't have one. Uh, there weren't many around, I'm assuming. No, I mean... In 1991, I chose Liverpool University because it had two things I wanted. It had a first-class rugby team, a club side called Waterloo, and it had a veterinary faculty where I wanted to study. Now, when I went to university, I was disheartened to find there's a men's rugby team, there's a men's rugby league team, but the University of Liverpool didn't have a women's rugby team. There was their partner rivals, the Polytechnic, Liverpool John Moores, now a fantastic, known as a fantastic sports PE college. They had a, a side... And a couple of the players from the club at Waterloo were playing there and coaching there. So I went along for a, the first term to their sort of training sessions. But I thought, as with all good rivalries, I can't play my entire career for the other, for the poly or the other university in the city. I've got to start a club up at Liverpool. So I managed to kind of find a supportive athletic union manager, um, a chap called Stuart Wade, who I have to say was very supportive of women's sports all throughout the university. And we set up a women's rugby team. And I'm glad to say when my sister joined the university 10 years later, she was club captain of the same club that I started. So, Classic. And it's still going. You, you mentioned uh, Waterloo because you played effectively, that was the base for your whole career while you were an international player. Playing yes. for that club for a, a good decade. And inevitably playing for Lancashire and the North West, the North. And with most people, of course, you would talk about those things. But when somebody's been an international for as long as you were, they're brilliant. But 
they're not as important as being an international player uh, in terms of status. So I'm going to take you into the England period. Uh, at uni, you're captain England students, so obviously you're playing at the top level of university rugby. At Waterloo, how soon did you become aware that you could, you were going to be good enough to play for your country? You played at junior levels, I know that. Did you know all along, I'll play for England? I made a choice when I moved to Richmond Rugby Club as a sixth former. I heard there's a women's rugby team for England, and I decided then I wanted to play. So my choices of club and university were strategically done in order to, to give me the very best chance to get into the England squad. Oh, Flinny, hold there. Bright people say, OK, I'm really good at this. I'm now going to start planning around this, mm-hmm. because my goal as an athlete is to play yeah. there. Yeah. You've just said to me, you plan your university, I'm not yeah. your career, yeah. around a vision to play for England? I met, when I was a mini, playing in um, a tournament at Marlow, I met there's a chap there called Rod Clark, I think, and he was a cartoonist from um, That's Life, you know, the kind of Esther Ranson mm-hmm. programme. He'd done a book called Rock and Mall Rugby. It was a kid's comic strip book about playing rugby. And there were girls in the comic strip that he drew. He was at Marlow Rugby Club doing a book signing. And I went up to him and I bought a book with my mum and dad and said... Can you sign this for me? I'm really chuffed there are girls in there because I'm a girl playing rugby at Slough. And he looked at me and he said, my daughter plays rugby, her name's Lindy, she plays rugby at Richmond Rugby Club, you know, and she said she's trying to play for England. You know, why don't you think about doing that? At that point, that was a revelation. So I, I must have been, I think, 10 or 11 at that time. I remember hearing of this woman who played for a, a women's rugby club, not just with other women, um, and, that, and Richmond Rugby Club only started in the late 80s. must have been just that sort of time. And I then decided to, once I couldn't play in the boys' team anymore because there were physical... I was getting daunted. I was a small 13-year-old. There were some sort of big lumps of 14-year-old lads I was charging at me. And my coach, to be honest, was more worried than I was about tackling them. But I moved to Windsor because there's a ladies' team there. And I was the youngest player by nine years in Windsor Rugby Club. But I was the, I was the most experienced player. And I was vice captain for my last, for my second or third season at the age of fourteen and fifteen, and I was, you know, having to decide moves. I also had to, you know, serve beers behind the bar because the <laughs> vice captain's job in the club was to serve the beers at the bar. Um, and so, but then I decided when that team in Windsor folded because the men's section were unsupportive and didn't really value women's team, they all moved to another club in in Ricelip nearby. But I couldn't get there by transport because I couldn't drive. I was only fifteen. Um, and to get a train, I had to go into London out again. So I decided to go to Richmond, which was a 35-minute train journey, every like, twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays training, and then Sunday play rugby. I was doing my A-levels then, and so I was, I would sort of get home from school and I'd go and do two hours rugby training. I'd get home at 10 o'clock at night, and then I'd do my A-level homework for two or three hours because I was convinced that by moving to a better club where there were internationals playing, I then knew Richmond had international men, men and women playing for England and Wales. I had a better chance of doing that. So all the time you think, I'm going to make it. So you're not surprised when you get into the England squad, the senior squad, full-time? No. Expectant, ready for it? Not in an arrogant way, but Mm. just I'd worked a long time for that, and it was my goal, and it was something that I had set out. And I I knew that, by God's grace, I was good enough. I knew that I'd been given qualities and skills and appreciation of the game, which really was extraordinary at that time. There were no other women who had been playing since they were seven years old. 
than other women who been who had that great grounding you get from any rugby where you play every position, you get taught the basics of all skills, kicking, scrummaging, tackling, passing, in all positions, so you learn a great basis. I didn't realise then those that was a very groundwork which would put me in position to be the best player I could be and play for England. You, you said by God's grace, and of course this is the Christians in Sport podcast, it's a great privilege to speak to uh, Anna Flynn, top top level international rugby player. It's great listening to the history of this um, because of the pioneering nature in women's sport of women's rugby that you were part of. Uh, how did the Christianity that is a bedrock of your own life, how did that faith take shape in this period as a rugby player? Where did it start? And how much influence does it have on you in this period en route to your England debut? Well, I was very fortunate. I grew up in a loving Christian family. Um, my parents were from a Catholic tradition, but very committed to a Christian way of life. And every Sunday we would go to church as a family. But what I realised now was quite extraordinary, which at the time just seemed normal to us. We, they made sure we fitted church in as well as our sport commitment. So in a, many rugby's was on a Sunday morning. So when there were three of us, my, myself and my two older brothers, who were all playing mini rugby, we would go to the eight o'clock church service on a Sunday morning in our tracksuits with a rugby kit underneath. And that would then allow us to go home, grab some porridge breakfast, and then out the door straight to the rugby club in time for a 10 o'clock start. So my parents were prepared to make space for both things on a Sunday morning. Of course, I realise now that's quite a big deal when you've got four kids um, running around in the house. Um, and then as I went through... I was always quite a, a fiery youngster. I was Rugby actually was a great outlet for me for my energy and frustrations, and I used to have quite a fiery temper. And my parents always commented that in the summer months I was a bit more unmanageable because there was no rugby as a, as a physical outlet for me to run around and knock people over as, as a you know within the rules of the game to kind of get rid of some of that frustration or um, energy. Um, and then, But it wasn't until I was about 11 years old, I went on a script union holiday camp, which was um, a bit of a revelation because I met other Christians there who from different faith backgrounds, different dominational backgrounds. And I had a chance to first discuss what was different about my belief to theirs and where we agreed, where we differed. Because I went to a Catholic convent school most of my life, which was a fantastic basis for a Christian upbringing. But I hadn't experienced that challenge to what's slightly different here and what's what do I believe in compared to what others might believe in and how does that differ? Um, but I remember then understanding for the first time that actually knowing God was about knowing all of him, not just God on a Sunday, God in a church, and God in an RE lesson at school, but actually it's about knowing Jesus, his son, having a personal relationship, which meant that you could talk to him every day, all the time, at any point, before a rugby game, when you're opposite him, trying to make a kick at goal, or when you've lost, you could speak to him all the time, rather than, as I had maybe perceived it until then, saving for Sunday mornings and RE lessons, and when you want to score points for your house and you know, answer a question right. Um, and I'll be honest, it didn't affect the way I lived as a person. And I did many things, I look back now, where I was completely hypocritical in what I said on a Sunday morning and how I behaved, the things I did to my parents, you know, stealing money out of my mum's purse to go and buy sweets or beating my brother up or causing arguments, that sort of thing. So it was a revelation. In fact, my mum still comments that I came back from that holiday time a different person. I was changed. I had I had encountered... God's love and I kind of really grasped what it meant so as a youngster that was quite a quite a change through my teenage years it meant that I had a different perspective on 
being a young person in an adult situation. So at that stage, I was very much the youngest in my senior women's team. So the rules were different then about the age you could play contact rugby. So at 13, I was in a team of women who were either 22 years or, or above. And there was, there was a chance there to you know, share in drinking games, to drink beers with them. And again, it I tussled that a few times, but it, it gave me at least my Christian faith, gave me a guideline, gave me a handrail to try and discuss those things with my parents, but also with other friends, but also try and work out you know, how God would behave in those situations, which weren't always easy. And I definitely messed it up many times, but it did give me a kind of a good, a good handrail. Let's, let's look both then at your England career um, and the way your faith informed that yeah. as you grew both in stature as a player and as a person, as a Christian. Uh, your first cap is against Holland in mm-hmm. 97. Then you're in the squad till 206. Uh, highlights, plenty of highlights, but what, what can compete with being the World Cup final? I mean, for any athlete in any sport, what could possibly compete with it? So I'd like to come to that. But let me ask you, first of all, the moment you put that white shirt on, very hard for a Welshman to say this, <laughs> you put that white shirt on with that rose yeah. for a real game yeah. in the first 50. Can you remember it now? I can. It was at the European Championships in Holland. It was in a one of those sort of strange European stadiums, which is an old football stadium, so lots of concrete high steps. I remember that the only thing I was sad about was my parents weren't there because it was away. Um, and I came on as a... I think I came on as a replacement, but it, it, I got a good chunk of the second half. And it, I'd been told, you're going to get on, this is going to be your first cap. Um, and it was fantastic. It was just an amazing feeling. I remember the shirt was huge for me. Because of those days, the, we didn't. We kind of often got very much the the off cuts in sort of sponsorship deals. We didn't really. We only had one shirt for the last the entire season, so you know it wasn't like a men's team who got a brand new shirt with their number, you know, embroidered on it every time. And so, and the shirt had some mud on it, despite oh, being washed word. from the games That's before. Isn't it? Yeah, but it was you know, and in those days, you still received a letter saying congratulations, you've been set for England. You know, you will be required to come to training camp please bring £25 for your shirt, £5 for your shorts and £3 for your socks. You know, that was... But it's because, of course, you know, as a student, I was like, I would sell my right arm to get that. <laughs> Anybody would. Yeah. So, as so you talk about being as a student and the choices I made. So I made a choice when I went to university I, about where my money was going to go. So as a student, I was... I had initially had an LEA grant, as, as we were fortunate in those days to get, but I didn't have family money behind me and I was trying to do part-time jobs as well. So... I realised I spent about a third of my money on rent, a third of my money on food, and the rest of my money I, I spend on playing rugby or drinking beer. Mm. And for me, it was absolutely no choice. You know, I could go without beer because that wasn't important to me, but actually playing rugby was why I'd chosen this university, why I'd chosen this rugby club, why I'd chosen the paths I'd, the, the choices I'd made beforehand. So therefore, I was often the non-drinker in my team. And people thought it was because I was a non-Christian because I was, you know, biggest genius. And of course it did give me a great chance to chat about my faith and about why I might be making different choices. But a lot of it was practical. I couldn't afford to, to drink alcohol. I could afford to eat or drink. So I thought, well, eating also is far more important. <laughs> um, and so therefore, it was th- that way. Again, I look back now and I think that was such an easy choice for me because it was about a practicality over uh, something I found real joy in. But actually, it was a, I felt it was a way that God gave me a really easy choice to make. He knew he knew that I would also choose the rugby. In your England career, 
uh, you've intimated that uh, you had changed positions, so you're always in the box, full back, scrum half, yeah. perhaps initially. Yeah, yeah. initially. Uh, the England coach says to you, Anne, you need to play hooker. So you say, I'll play hooker if the England coach tells me to play hooker. Yep. And you make a nine year yeah. England squad career by changing positions. Yeah, it was um, in the summer of 1994. I remember after the England students' sort of season had finished, and I was selected for the England Academy or Development Squad as a utility back because I would cover scrum half and full back and probably anywhere in between. Um, at that time, of course, you couldn't make substitutions except for injury, so tactical subs were not an option. So there were very many good players, if not their careers, sat on the bench. Um, and I spent a lot of my time as a replacement watching other people play very well and not getting injured. Um, but there was there were a particular sort of paucity of decent footballing hookers, he said. He said, we've got people sat on the bench for England Day, he said, who haven't got half the now you've got in terms of skills and read the game. He said, he said, you know, have you ever played in the front row? And I said, well, no, because that age I was just 20, 21. And of course, in terms of strength, mm. muscle strength, your neck sort of strength, and particularly for safety reasons, I'd gone nowhere near the front row because I was quite slight um, and quite a sort of a, a, a more petite frame. Um, and in terms of safety, no one ever put me in the front row, which would have been safe against grown women who were much heavier, much older. He said, right, he said, you've got, so he says, you've got all the skills we need in a hooker. You can read the game well. You've got good basic skills. And you're as ferocious on the ball as you are off it, he said. I think you should, you know, can you throw? And I said, well, I used to the javelin for the county and I play a lot of cricket. He's like, right, get throwing a rugby ball against a wall this summer. And that, that literally three months later, I was I was picked for the England squad as a hooker. Wow, that's really good. When you're in, when you're in, I, I want to ask about the two World Cups because it's a contrast of the yeah. highest order. I mean, this is the pinnacle of all sport playing for your country in the World Cup final. Yeah, you get to do it once. You might have got to do it twice in two thousand and two. Uh, your runners up. Yeah. Contrast that experience with two thousand and six, when post injury in Canada. You don't make the squad for the final. What? What? They must be the highs and lows of your England career, I'm assuming. Yes, absolutely. They were, in many ways, complete ends of the spectrum, but in some ways very similar. So in 2002, um, I had had a good run-up. I'd finished my veterinary career, and I'd, I'd always decided that throughout my studies, I had moved things around, and I had taken risks, and I had engineered things so I could always keep my rugby going sometimes at the expense of my studies so for example the 98 World Cup I went to that even though my second year exams were only four days after the World Cup finished and my tutors were furious they couldn't understand why I was sacrificing my valuable university sort of chance to go and I said this is the World Cup though I'm going as a travelling reserve in 98 I might get to play at the time when I initially decided that the second year exams were supposed to be a month after I got back from the World Cup but they were moved forward so um, I came back. I tried to revise, of course, in my hotel room. And my teammates were great. They kind of swapped rooms around. So I actually had a single room, although the smallest room in the team, so I could revise and study by myself. But, of course, my mind wasn't really on studying when we were playing in the World Cup. And I was there every training session trying to be helpful. As a travelling reserve, you kind of get the best and the worst. You get all the excitement and the team play. You watch all shirt presentation. But when it comes down to it, you don't actually get to do anything. And I was in the... Because of injury, I was brought into the squad for the... The last game we played was the third, fourth playoff in 98. 
I remember being on the bench, in my shirt, thinking, I could get on here, I could get on here. And the coach decided not to put me and other reserves on. So I got as far as being, for the third, fourth playoff, being on the bench, watching others play, and not doing it. Then I had to come back from that sort of high, then try to do my exams, which didn't work very well. So I had to do resits, then I had to sort of resit a year of my studies. But the whole time, I was saying, that's fine, I can concentrate rugby this year, I can keep training. So we came to 2002... I'd qualified, finished my studies a year earlier, and I had deliberately taken um, a temporary job with sort of deaf for and foot and mouth crisis, which enabled me to work in the week and get a good sort of level of pay and then have my weekends free for training, matches, England fitness camps, that sort of thing. Um, I was then able to have a fantastic sort of eight-month period where I was actually a full-time athlete. So for eight months, I was funded by the sports lottery, um, and I didn't have to work, I just trained, which was fantastic. Um, although my mind started to get a bit fidgety after a few months, but I kept myself sort of in the mode with the focus of the World Cup. So going to the World Cup in 2002, knowing I was actually second choice for the two hookers in the team, but you know everything can happen. Played in the semi-final, had a fan, had a played a blinder. We as a team just clicked, and all the players who had been jostling for position just worked. We beat Canada by 50 points in the semi-final, and we all the moves we called came off brilliantly. All the little dummies we tried worked, and we walked off feeling on cloud nine. Unfortunately, the England coach had decided, it became apparent, that he was rotating his squad, so the first choice members were being saved for the final against New Zealand. So there were four, four or five of us who were benched for that, for that final, even though we'd had probably the best game we'd ever played for England on that semi-final. So I was there in the World Cup final, on the bench again though, and seeing you know my, my rival position, doing all the things which I thought I could do you know better or as well in some areas, or maybe not so in other areas. And then a real, a real paradox, this player, was my offset hooker, was renowned for being sort of a real push in the line in terms of getting penalties away. And again, she got penalised and got simbin, so she got sent off for 10 minutes. So that meant that the next scrum was called I'll Be On. We didn't have a scrum for five, six minutes, though, that ten-minute period. And in that six-minute period, New Zealand scored a try down the blind side where she should have been defending. So they scored the try. was actually meant they, they beat us in the World Cup final. A scrum then happened. I got on, so I played for probably only five minutes of play before she then came back on. I then sat on the bench second half thinking, am I going to get put on again? I've got a chance to prove myself. But we lost. We lost 19 points to nine by a try that was scored where my rival had been sent off and that was one of her sort of fl- acknowledged flaws in her game she had many other strengths she was much faster than I was she was kind of as I say probably a bit grittier and like to be a bit nasty than I was on the pitch but I thought that was a strength in my favour rather than hers um, so I played for only probably five minutes in that World Cup final and then standing on a podium receiving a silver medal but feeling like we'd lost the world rather than mm-hmm. come runners up but it took me a long time to get over that disappointment because we, we felt we should have won, we could have won, and we didn't do. However, that was a real highlight I look back because we made the World Cup final. We were second best in the world. We were finalists. So that was a real high, and I then was able to come back from that. So four years later, 2006, I was in a different position. I was I was come back from injury. I had a stress fracture in my foot, which had gone undiagnosed for, for six weeks. I had been playing on it, unwittingly thinking it was just a a bit of soft tissue injury, and again, an MRI scan had, had, had not shown it up on the on the scan. So by the time I came around to the World Cup in the summer of 2006, 
I simply had not made my fitness back up. And a young pretender coming up to the ranks had shown she was ready to take the place. And my coach then, I remember getting a phone call in my sort of accommodation room um, and saying, hi, Flinny, I'm sorry, mate, it's not good news. And I remember that, that phone call with absolute clarity. Um, and he said, you have not made the squad of 44. Sorry, sorry you've not made the squad to go to the World Cup. Um, we want you as a reserve, but you won't be a travelling reserve. We can't afford to take you with us. But, um, you know, I know you've had this injury, which really hampered your, your progress. So well done for getting where we've got to, but you won't be coming to Canada. And I remember just feeling absolutely distraught because I had, I had sort of, you know, I'd worked so hard I'd, to get back from the injury. I sort of engineered time off through work to try and train properly like I had for the 2002 World Cup. And I remember going for a run in the woods, it was chucking it down with rain. I remember being near Melton Mowbray, going out to a park, I was running, running around in the rain with dog walkers in their kind of wellies and Macintoshes and running in the rain in so shorts and T-shirt, being soaked wet through and just crying the whole way around, going, why, oh, why, God? I've worked so hard for this. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So you're absolutely right. In terms of paradox, they were the highs and lows. Four years apart, different preparation, different stage of my career in many ways. Um, but yeah, they were, that was a hard time to take. Thanks, Finney, because it's not... <clears throat> the one thing about doing a podcast is you see the person's face, you see the expressions change, which of course you can't see if you're listening to us. And it's amazing watching your features change because you were there when that phone call came in just the sheer agony and all pros know it, don't they? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's why the podcast is so precious, Flinny, because he, young women and young men who listen to this, they'll cry and run in the rain. <laughs> They've done it, haven't they? I know. I know. We all have done it. Freddie, there's one thing here that's making me wonder, because you're, you're such a, from being a kid, you were very, very clear in where you're going to go and how you're going to do it. With such innate drive, uh, what happens when, say, in 2013, uh, the Women's Barbarians team is called the Nomads, you play your last top-level match? That is a long career. 2013, and you know it's over now. How on earth do you channel that drive and energy when you have to stop playing at the top level? Well, it's interesting. After I was injured in the 2006 season and didn't make the World Cup squad for that year, I remember two weeks after that kind of final I'd finished, I remember waking up and thinking, I just don't want to train at the minute. And that's a feeling I'd never had. So in all my England career, my aspirations to train at top level, I'd, aw I'd awake with a burning passion to, to get better at rugby, to train, to do, you know, with, a, with an eye on my next training programme. And I had a little training diary, you know, like most athletes have, to keep track of what I was doing. And I remember writing in that, you know, just don't feel like it today. Mm. And that was a bit of a sort of a slap in the face, like, oh, never, never experienced that. What's, hmm, what's happening here? I remember sort of chatting with Christian sports friends and praying about it quite a bit and saying to God, "Is this? What, when's this going to come back? You know, and I remember saying to a friend, when this passion comes back, then I'll, I'll get training again. Because at that stage, I didn't realise that was the end of my England career. I didn't realise that the injury I was still carrying would require surgery. And that surgery recovery time would allow 
players to establish themselves in a position where I simply couldn't overtake them again. They were younger, they were the coach's primary choice, and so that was actually a um, a foretelling of what was going to be the end of my career. I didn't know at the time. But that passion for training never came back for international level, and I knew I wasn't naturally talented enough to just perform without that training um, input that I'd given. But I also still enjoyed the game of rugby. I still wanted to play... And I saw that exciting kind of butterfly feeling on a Sunday morning before going to play a match, that kind of anticipation of, oh, I can have a great games day. The sun is shining, there's a crisp day, it's down place for rugby. You know, that real buzz of playing a game. But as I got older, as my injuries became more frequent and more serious and lasted longer, it did become quite tiring um, and quite painful. And in my team, I went back, I was playing for Richmond again when I was based in London, and remember the the younger players laugh at me saying, how much tape are you going to put on your body before you play a match for me? You're going to need a physio just for you. I said, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll sort myself out. I'll be with you in, you know, 20 minutes. But I, I realised that actually when that passion for playing and you're just tired of training to play, because I don't want to be a player who would turn up and play but not train because that would be against my own kind of personal standards. I couldn't do that to a team. I thought now's the time to do something else. Um, and I was actually... Had, I did my basic refereeing course back in 2002. And I'd always enjoyed kind of umpiring other sports as well, hockey, netball and cricket. I've always been involved in being an official because I I remember rules and I like my knowledge of the game actually can help influence a match get better, I think. So I started taking up refereeing more seriously um, and I was able to progress through the sort of experience and refereeing quite a lot of military games for army men's teams or for local sides. And I actually found that actually as a referee... For me, it's far better than being a coach. I get really bored doing coaching. I've done coaching sessions and I've even coached a, um, a regional side for a short while, but I, I got frustrated because you can't get in the park and do anything. As a coach, you stand on the sideline watching people do stuff you never train them to do or forgetting all the stuff you did in training. And it's really annoying because they don't do what you tell them or they forget or they panic. And so as somebody who's instinctively playing rugby their entire life I couldn't understand how someone couldn't know how to box kick or and that's you know a failing in me and my impatience and lack of appreciation of other people's sort of you know other skills but I found that being a referee you get the best seat in the house for a rugby game you get to be part of it yet without all the bangs and scrapes mm-hmm. and injuries and unless you get in the wrong position then you can get knocked over like anybody else but I really enjoyed having the chance to make make a good game excellent and rescue a bad game and make it really pretty good so actually you get a chance to influence the match and of course so often referee men's games there's always inevitable kind of questioning when they see you arrive and say uh excuse me love do you know the ref is <laughs> no oh yeah every Stop it. almost every time do you know i said well, I'm, I'm your referee and there's a kind of intake of breath <laughs> the look up and down for some burly six footer you're the ref yes and there's this kind of unspoken question you can hear saying do you know what you're doing? And then say, well, I'll, have a, I'll come chat to your team and then well, you and I can have a chat later on. I was like, I heard one guy walk away, yeah, but we've got a bird refereeing us today. Oh, is it um, to you? Absolutely. So I, I thought, right, let's have a special chat with this team. So <laughs> we, had this, we had all the team together. I said, right, gents, I'd like to see your, your suds, please. I'd like to see any headgear you're wearing and body armour. I want to see your nails. And I said, not because I want to check what nail varnish you've got on, <laughs> Check it's safe, you don't scratch anyone's eye out. Because anyone who's played, you know, some in the front row like me knows you can get some nasty fingers near your eyes. I don't want anyone losing an eyeball while we're playing today. And so this is kind of like 
Right, okay. And so going round, having a chat, I said, you play in the front row? Yep, 14 years. And before that, I played scrum half. I said, so don't give me any back chat. I've heard it all before. And then suddenly, of course, the game goes on. You get to a scrummage. And, of course, that's where the front row, they have a dark art. They hate to hear from a referee who's played in the front row themselves. And you can start saying, right, I know what you're doing. Put your arm on a long bind or else I'm going to penalise you. Okay, ref. What do, we, what do we call you is often the question. I said, well, you can call me ref or mom or referee or I'll even take sir if you get confused. But I don't want to hear any bad language. It's often a line I use because that's one of my sticklers. I said, anyone swearing at me will be taking a 10-minute recovery on the side of the pitch. So I enjoy the banter that way and I get to be part of the team in that way. I get to have the, the jokes and, you know, I get to experience the the teamwork, and I see, I think, oh, good tackle. I get to kind of comment in the game, sometimes, usually to myself, but occasionally I'll sort of, you know, can't help myself and say, great tackle number six, make oh, sure you run away better next time. Oh, I see, you're so animated. You love it. Yeah, I do. Oh, I really enjoy that it. good. We're running out of our time, OK? So I want you to help me think. Think with me. How have you used the experience that you have to help other people? You're doing some chaplaincy now. You've been chaplain at one World Cup. You're going to be at the World Cup in Ireland. That's this right. Year. As you look back, as a person who's pioneered, yeah, I mean, you really are one of the pioneers of Christianity in women's sport in our country. You won't say that, but you have been. What do you reflect, and, and how can you help our listeners, some of whom have faith, some of whom aren't sure, about whether they could be a Christian in sport, how can you? How does your experience help them as they reflect? I think the key thing for me is that whatever you are trying to achieve in sport, you need to remember what your motivation is. And for me, from an early age, I realised that being a girl who played rugby was unusual. But I also realised that that wasn't by any chance or accident. And I began to realise that actually it wasn't a, um, it was an opportunity presented to me which I could take with both hands or I could avoid. And I think when you, when you realise that actually the skills you have, the, the hand-to-eye coordination, the ability to read a game, the ability to take in moves or new um, positions on a pitch... If God has given you those skills and that ability to understand something which is maybe alien to other people, other girls or other young people might not get it in the same way you do. If you see things clearly, if you see things falling into place in your mind, that's a way that God's saying to you, this is how I made you deliberately and specifically to play this sport. I remember seeing the Chariots of Fire film when I was a young teenager and being so excited to hear Eric Dell saying, you know, when I run fast, I feel his pleasure. And I guess through coming to know Christians of sport as well through university, I found um, a group of people who understood that actually when I wanted to worship God on a Sunday, it didn't always have to be in a church building um, or in a quiet moment of reflective prayer. It could be singing songs of praise as loud as I could, or it could be running as fast as I could on the pitch tackling somebody as hard as I could within the laws of the game of course um, or executing a box kick brilliantly or the rare occasion for me scoring a try as part of a team move and thinking yes we did that spot on 
um, and remembering in all that that the skills you have, the strength you have, the speed you might have, don't come because of your brilliance. They come because God made you that way. And that's something not not to take lightly, I guess, really, but to be celebrated and to really enjoy and understand that um, you can do this because God made you special. Maybe nobody else has got the skills, the path and the opportunity that you're going to have. So you should seize that. And you should, if you don't try it, you're never going to know if it works. And I've always wanted to be somebody who didn't look back and say, what if I'd done that? What if I'd tried this? Would that have happened? So my advice would be, I guess, to young people now who are thinking about being daring and stepping out and saying, well, I could move to that club because I get a chance to be a better player, but it means a big sacrifice. I'd say do it. All I know, Flinny, is what it was worth waiting to get you. It was worth the wait because you've been class. I, you, know, you can't see us, but I'm going to give Flinny a hug. I normally reach over and shake hands. Flinny, top, top girl. Thank you. Absolutely top girl. You've been listening to the Christians in Sport podcast with Graham Daniels and Major Arno Flynn, but Flinny to us now. Uh, anything you've heard, anything that might help you as a Christian in sport, if you want help from us, all you've got to do is go to christiansinsport.org.uk. We'll be straight back at you. Great having your company. Really look forward to speaking to you next time. All the best. Thank you.